Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. We're podcasting from Northeast Ohio. This is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series, Race and Democracy in Northeast Ohio, a collaboration with the School of Peace and Conflict Studies and the Center for Pan-African Culture. The project includes a 10 podcast episode series focused specifically on the intersections of race and democracy in Northeast Ohio. We are also planning community workshops on the topic of race and democracy and developing online curricular materials such as activities, toolkits, and concept pages. This series is made possible with funding from Mark Lewine and the John Gray Painter Program. Check out our website to learn more about our upcoming events and stay up to date on new content. You can find us at www.growingdemocracyoh.org. That was so awesome. And, and I think our regular listeners, Shamara, will be a little thrown because you don't sound anything like Ashley. And this is your first podcast hosting. Yes, this is my first podcast hosting. I am very excited in the world of um, podcasting. <laughs> um, I have been on the interview side a lot. So I'm excited to uh, flip the script, if you will. Uh, and begin to be on the other side of the dialogue with asking the questions. So thanks for having me. So this, uh, as our longtime listeners know, we record these intros after we've recorded our interviews. So um, knowing, knowing that, uh, what, how was your first uh, foray into the, uh, the, being the interviewer? Uh, it was really interesting. It was um, so kind of like shameless pledge. These are my sister scholars, right? So <laughs> we chat about uh, race and democracy and other things often. <laughs> so uh, that was very helpful to have them uh, as a part of that first time. Um, and then also with you being there to help round it out. And, um, you know, even though the internet connection did not want us to be great that day, uh, we're still great and we still have it for you today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. We, we were having lots of technology troubles, but it was a ton of fun. And, and I'll say, uh, I feel like I was largely an observer to um, just, you know, a triad of amazingness happening. So uh, it was it was really a pleasure for me to be able to, uh, you know, I guess, yes, ask some questions, but also just be able to listen to uh, what the three of you had to say. So joining us today, we actually have a what we're going to call a panel. We have two people that we interviewed. The first is uh, Nishani Frazier, and she's an associate professor of American Studies and History at University of Kansas. Prior to being at the University of Kansas, she held positions as Associate Curator of African American History and Archives at Western Reserve Historical Society, Assistant to the Director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Archives at the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change, and Personal Assistant for Dr. Hope Franklin before and during his tenure as Chair of President Bill Clinton's Advisory Board on One America. 
Her research interests include 1960s freedom movements, oral history, food, digital humanities, and Black economic development. Nishani's recent book publication, Harambee City, The Congress of Racial Equality in Cleveland and the Rise of Black Power Populism, was released with an accompanying website also titled Harambee City. Dr. Frazier is currently working on a tasty new, new book called Cooking with Black Nationalism. And then our second guest is Aisha Bell Hardaway, JD, and she is an associate professor of law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law, where she also serves as director of the criminal clinic in the Kramer Law Clinic and director of the Social Justice Law Center. Professor Hardaway was named most recently as co-director of the Social Justice Institute at Case Western Reserve University. As a member of the faculty, Professor Hardaway has taught as a clinician in the areas of health law, civil litigation, and criminal justice. Her research and scholarship interests include the intersection of race and the law, constitutional law, criminal law, policing, and civil litigation. Professor Hardaway is a recognized expert in policing and police reform. Local and national media outlets regularly cite her. She also serves as the deputy monitor on the independent monitoring team appointed to evaluate police reforms implemented by the Cleveland Police Department under a federal consent decree. Woo, that was a lot, but joining us today are our two panelists. Thanks so much for being here. All right, so with us today are uh, Professors Hardaway and Frazier, and we are our Series 6, Episode 2. All right. If you want to communicate powerfully, tell a story. That's a quote from Charlie Rose, the former dean at City or National. So I'd like to open it up for our guests today by hearing their story. I have to say that... Uh, my story is really, I, I can sort of tell it off the top of my head because it's such a defining aspect of who I am. <laughs> my story always begins with being the child of civil rights activists. Um, that has defined my life from childhood uh, to adulthood, from the time that my parents decided to uh, leave Cleveland um, come to North Carolina to live in Soul City, an all-Black town established by Floyd McKissick in the 1970s, um, until this very moment where uh, a good portion of what I teach and what I write about is the civil rights movement. Uh, so who I am is, is very much reflected in that relationship and the relationship of other uh, extended family members and cousins and uncles who were all involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, my uncle J.R. Key, uh, who was known as a radical, uh, who I talk about in my book. Um, and uh, I won't tell you how radical. See the book. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers here, right? Spoilers here. Um, my aunt Ruth Turner, Tony Perot, Frank Anderson. There are a, a litany of um, people who 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 whose story really framed my understanding of of what it means to to um, fight for freedom, to challenge, to resist. Um, and, and, and to be in community. So uh, I have to say, I guess I should say my story is technically not my own and is my own. <laughs> it, it is generationally defined. That's the best way to describe uh, my story. It is generationally defined. Wow, that's really powerful. What about you, Professor Hardaway? 
Yeah, so I guess maybe I know why Dr. Arki uh, gathered us. Uh, and, <laughs> um, you know, and, and I hesitate on telling my story largely because, you know, the my dad died last year and the sort of like processing the grief and figuring out how I can manage the conversation around the story and, and, and still sort of tell it. Uh, in the way that I would if he were still alive uh, <laughs> uh, uh, has been interesting for me over the last year and a half. Um, but, you know, my my parents uh, were two radicals. I wouldn't say civil rights, uh, that they, they were they were Black Panthers uh, and they were very, very clear about liberation. Um, they were also extremely young. My mother and father were 17 and 16 uh, when I was born. And and I often think about, you know, how they made it a point to make it clear to me that everything black, black was beautiful. Everything black was brilliant. Everything black was, you know, to be desired. And um, and. And that's an interesting sort of like juxtaposition as you get older, right? Because I, I remember being asked a question, when did you learn that black was bad? And it was like, not until I got around y'all, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because, because, you know, because my dad, you know, my mother had my hair in a huge Afro and my dad called me little Angela, right? And, and they were very, very clear about that. I mean, they have pictures of me in like a little like double-breasted suit jacket carrying my briefcase to go to liberation meetings. <laughs> okay, we were at the liberation meetings too, we as toddlers. <laughs> right, as toddlers, right? <laughs> and, and, and so, and so my origin story really is is that that piece of like being raised by parents who are very much the product of the 60s and and being clear about who they expected their daughter to be right like my dad was like I was four years old and I was reading um, because it was an expectation that I know how to read. Um, and there was just really no question. He didn't care what I was reading, but I needed to be reading everything in front of me. And then also, you know, being, I had grandparents who had to help these two young people who, you know, didn't really know what they were doing all the time. And so I often say that, I'm, I'm you know, from Cleveland, from the hood of Cleveland, my mother with Morris Black Projects, you know, when I was first born, uh, by way of a pig farm in, in Sticks County, Georgia, right? Twigs County, Dry Branch is the name of the town. Um, and I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, who's the love of my life, you know, raising pigs and shelling peas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I'm loving this. <laughs> I am doing the amen on the yeah. <laughs> I wish we had video here because because she is, and this is fantastic. I, it, it occurs to me, oh, Professor Hardway, that I mean, one of the things that you said that just strikes me is that, like, that in especially in the U.S., that that this idea of like, I mean, well, white supremacy that maybe not maybe, but that it also also has a tendency to kind of force stories on people of color, but especially black Americans. I mean, is this just, whether that's right, education or just, you know, uh, media or social norms, I'm 
air quotes here. Um, is is this some kind of a signal of other like racialized system of oppression? And, and maybe it's better for us to kind of take a step back and talk about what do we mean when we say racialized systems of oppression? I'll, let's start with uh, Professor Hardaway. So, so if I could take just another step before we get there, I mean, I think you're on to something. I don't want to, I don't want to speak past that one thing that you just hit upon, right? Which is other people telling our stories for us, right? And so, which is, which is why I always struggle because if people look at sort of, you know, how many schools, elementary schools I went to as a child, or the fact that I was raised by teenage parents, right? All these other things, you get the question of. You, oh, well, how did you make it, right? And I got it because <laughs> of exactly who my parents are, you know, right? And and who my grandparents uh, are. And and so and so I think you're absolutely right. There is this notion of white supremacy that is often attached to to uh, our beginnings uh, that if it doesn't follow exactly the path that, you know, um, they have had and that they believe for whatever reason is the right and the only, the white right and only path, right? Then then somehow, you know, you must be an exception. Um, you know, uh, and, and I just, I always bristle at the exception piece of it. I mean, there are other reasons why more people like me don't, you know, arrive to sort of these places that are that 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 folks decide have meaning and and value and and, and assign some level of you know importance. But that's not because that's not because of where we come from, right? It's, <laughs> uh, it's Dr. Fraser. No, I'm still in the amen corner. Uh, <laughs> I always tell people on the Zoom when we hold up the little hand, it's like raising hands to raise a question. I'm like, see, that's that normalized notion. I'm raising the <laughs> hand to say amen. That's why I'm raising the hand. It is not to ask a question. I, I have to uh, absolutely um, um, uh, lift up uh, what Professor B uh, Bill Hardaway has talked about about this way in which we are defined from the outside and the other. Yeah. And what's so powerful about both of our stories is that our parents were very clear about helping us to establish an inside way of determining who we are mm -hmm. uh, and asserting our, our power in the process. Now, that doesn't mean that racialized oppression has not been in operation. I'm a historian, so I, I see this from a historical framework, right? So one of the things that is uh, a sort of part of the problem of dealing with racialized oppression is that our historical framework is badly contorted and twisted. This is all the why there's hullabaloo around the 1619 Project and the critical race theory. What both of those things have said is that historically, in tandem with freedom has been the notion of unfreedom, right? And that the two exist together. And part of the resentment is not uh, willing to grapple with the fact that racism is embedded in law and social constructs and political constructs and economic const constructs. And that Communities that then come after us are then also feeling the brunt of those kinds of oppressions. Uh, Dr. Franklin said, um, you know, America, when it came to race, cut its IT first on black people. Right. And then it set the framework within how other communities would be viewed. Right. If you are not white, 
then you are the other. And if you are the other, then you are under the, the framework of, of, of that oppression. And I think we have to also understand that the complexities of racialized oppression are not necessarily in the dynamics of the sort of in-your-face expectations that a lot of people have, right? There's the assumption that, you know, it's not racism until somebody slaps a, a burning cross in your yard. That that's not, <laughs> that's not how racialized oppression works at all. It's in every detail in so many small and minute ways and, and so many big ways that in a lot of ways can be defining for African-Americans in terms of health and all kinds of circumstances if you don't have that built-in inner self to op operate to challenge that. And even then, you know, you get tired. <laughs> you just get tired. Uh, sometimes you don't realize how some of this stuff has seeped in on you. So I have a follow up question because you, you talked about critical race theory and, you know, there has been a lot of pushback against that. But, you know, there's also been pushback against this discussion or idea that there are racialized systems of oppression. Um, and yet, you know, kind of not any pushback against what, you know, are arguably you know, similar, at least from from an epistemological standpoint, is like social constructivism. Is it just the term race or racialized uh, or racism that is kind of a, a, a trigger point, do you think? And, and, and why, um, why that? Because <laughs> well, people don't like to be seen, right? I mean, especially bad actors, right? I mean, people don't like their, the, 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 their, their shadow, right, to be exposed. And I, I think, you know, even even the most well-meaning people, for whatever reason, if they think they're well-meaning, right? For whatever reason, don't want to say the word race, right? I, when I got hired into, this is a little bit of a tangent, so forgive me. But when I got hired here into academia, I remember um, being welcomed by, and she knows this story, she knows I, whatever, by a, a well-meaning colleague, right, that I was eventually going to be very close to. And she said, I'm so glad you're here. Now we can talk about race. And I was like, we, you, this is a legal clinic in a law school committed to serving people who can't afford legal representation in a major metropolitan city, right? Where there are a lot of black people. How are you teaching and not talking about race? How are you preparing your students to do this work and not talking about race? And how inappropriate is, and this is like really our conversation, I'm not even kidding you. And how inappropriate is it for now that you brought in this one black person to think that this one black person is going to do all of that heavy lifting for you in a successful way that like resonates deeply with your majority white students, right? No, this is, you are setting this up for failure. <laughs> this is, <laughs> right? Um, and, and so, and so, and so I, I think, you know, I think that that is, I think that is where a lot of the pushback comes from because just the mere mention of race makes people uncomfortable with the things that as much as we're in this space of folks wanting to deny racism and the impact of racism, right? They know, they know, and they understand that really, really very clearly. Yeah. I, I also, oh, 
sorry. I just also think it's really important because you said racialized systems of oppression, and I don't know um, that it's been adequately or clearly defined in a way, but I, I, I think for the purposes of your listeners, it's, it's incredibly important um, for us to be clear on the fact that we're not talking about equality, right? We're not talking about sort of, um, you know, um, we're, we're talking about those every, every as, as Dr. Fraser said, right? That it's everywhere in American society. Uh, and that, that means that all of America, all of its systems and its structures within it, right? Operate as racialized systems of oppression. Uh, and we have to be really, really clear on that. If we need a litmus test, right? I'd say if you evaluate or assess any system, just look to see how representative the demographics of the system are. Do they reflect the racial makeup of the country, right? If there's a larger thriving institution, corporation, institution of higher education or a governmental body, right? If it's run and used by a disproportionate number of white people and to their benefit, that is a racialized system of oppression, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I, I mean, you, I love that breakdown. I absolutely love that <laughs> breakdown. And 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 to your question, right? There is also this element in which people don't want to be confronted with the ways in which whiteness is normalized, right? Mm, yeah. Because the moment you start to have conversations about whiteness as normalized, then the foundations of power, the foundations of identity, the foundations mm -hmm. of uh, control, all of that is disrupted, right? This is why Fox News is losing its mind over the notion that Santa Claus can be anything but white, right? Because you normalize whiteness as the way to see the whole world and anything that seeks to upend or disrupt that becomes a challenge. So the sort of other side of racialized oppression is when you cannot release power, right? That's another sort of indication of racialized power in mm, operation. I love that. And oppression that's in operation. Right. If you're going to fight me over Santa Claus. Right. That, that, that's that's <laughs> it's not about. <laughs> right. uh, that's about something deeper <laughs> and about how you have constructed your identity so closely to certain kinds of things that you're not willing to release it. You're not mm -hmm. willing to. There has got to be uh, equity in it. I love that. So yeah. not even willing to give uh, an inch. That because that means uh, potential for total right? <laughs> giving up of everything. Wow. Okay. Uh, that's that's I, that's fascinating. I love that. Thank you. So I I'm curious that the Equal Justice Initiative says this on defining racial justice. Um, I quote: We must truthfully confront our history of racial injustice before we can repair its painful legacy. Uh, Brian Stevenson understands this as kind of place-based work, right? Specifically in Montgomery, Alabama. So I'm curious, from both of you, how do you define racial justice? Uh, but more importantly, how or why is this issue of racial justice becoming so partisan? Yeah. Let's go with yeah, Professor Hardaway. Bill Hardaway. So I. Okay, I, I have to just be frank. And this yeah. is the black power coming out. This is what happens when you are centered from the self outwards. My question is, who is the confrontation for? 
Black people are confronted on a, a regular basis with issues of racism. So this whole question about confrontation serves a purpose for one group of people, and that is those who are the deniers, those who wish to silence, those who wish to resist. That doesn't mean I'm saying that we should not have some reflection on our history. The truth of the matter is all of America sort of deifies history is just a particular kind of history, right? This is why you can have Robert E. Lee and people screaming and crying about the statue coming down. So we're not talking about sort of um, our understanding of, of the historical circumstances that make us, right? It's about the ways in which... Um, the conversation is so focused on the, if we could all just get together and deal with this, that it becomes burdensome and undermines the getting down to the business of power sharing. All right. So I, I'm a little bit, let me just say ambivalent about that kind of framework for getting to racial justice. You know, within the context of black power, part of the transition in the 1960s was that the conversation had come to an end, right? And it's not about this uh, act, you know, question of moral persuasion. It's about, I want what is mine by rights of human rights, <laughs> okay? And so racial justice is simply a process by which we are uh, um, ensuring that all parties are participating full-bodiedly in citizenship. I'm not sure that I'm wanting to wait on the conversation, in part because the conversation always ends up being in some weird direction that has nothing to do with whether I'm going to get my freedom or not. And just, so um, I don't want to sort of tell your listeners, don't confront. That's not what I mean. I just want to ensure that we don't sort of tie racial justice to the fact that we have to confront first. Let me put it like that. So that's my feeling about it. I'll, I'll just shut up and let Dr. Hardaway take away from that point. Yeah. No, I mean, um, I love that. I, that is such a uh, uh, an important sort of call out, you know, um, on on sort of like who who where's the confrontation and who needs to be confronted because it's not us. I love that. Um, to your last, the, the the last part of your question, I think it's important for us to know that racial justice has always been partisan. And when I say partisan, I mean that the majority of white people in both political parties have never supported racial justice. So <laughs> it's partisan to the extent that they agree and they concur, regardless of whether or not it's D or R, right? And, and I, I mean, I, I just want to say clearly that what we think of as racial justice is not the same as what folks would commonly refer to civil to civil rights or the end of discrimination, right? The legal sort of protection that that allow or call for the end of discrimination. Instead, I think we have to be clear that racial justice can only be found through the deliberate, proactive, and remedial efforts right, that seek to work to establish racial equity, which is not the end of sort of this, this legal definition of, 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 of discrimination. Um, and so there is, I mean, um, Dr. Frazier will know far, uh, be able to call it out uh, with far more eloquence than I will, but there's a constant line through American history that shows that while some decision makers and elected leaders have supported civil rights, right, 
particularly in the 1960s, we've never seen a push for racial equity in this country by either party. We've never seen a push for racial equity. Instead, you know, right, what we have are longstanding objections to reparations and a full, and also longstanding objections to full and unencumbered use of voting powers and voting blocks, right, as just two examples of how there's always been strong and broad opposition to racial justice. And that's true, again, regardless of political party. So if we're kind of stuck in this, well, let's talk about it, Cycle. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's come to some agreement, right? How, how do we move past that? How do we get out of that um, kind of sinkhole? <laughs> if you, <laughs> Dr. Frazier's going, if I knew this, okay, you think I wouldn't have tried this? <laughs> no, and I'm saying, and I'm saying, I'm not, if, if she, I'm like, that's white people's work. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. Yes. So just to jump in here, I know that um, I just want to jump in here. I think it is like, how do we get out of it? But I think the question is more about, you know, the metrics about the things that we have been doing to get out of it. Right. So since we've been forced into it, we have been getting out of it right. um, in our own ways, not necessarily in a systemic way or in this way that makes sense to the dominant narrative, but we're here because we've been getting out. So the question then becomes, you know, how can we amplify those things that have been working for us to transform our narrative? And then the real question becomes, what's the role of white people in the liberation of black people? Because that's what we're really getting at. We know how to stay free, right? <laughs> We know how to do that, but then we really have to be honest about the systems and the institutions that are here, why they were designed to do what they've been so successful at doing. So I think that becomes the real question around how do we hold institutions accountable? What's their role and what's the role of whiteness in getting to this space of liberation? And, and that's what Dr. Hardaway means by that's white people's work, <laughs> right? Uh, historically, you yeah. know, student nonviolent coordinating committee at one point uh, SNCC, known as SNCC, uh, a civil rights organization in the 60s, determined that in order to move forward, two things needed to happen. Context first was that, that Black people had to assert power, right? And that power could take multiple forms, including political power, economic power, but it's through a sort of unified action. But the second thing that happened is that white people, uh, as SNCC uh, framed it, had to be sent back to their own community, and, and confront their own community. And, and therein is the problem, right? And this is also the sort of the issue around, around white normativity, because if you contextualize this, uh, this circumstance, right, as a function of um, if just people could get along and people get nicer, then you don't have to confront each other. Uh, and it undermines the, the, the wish right, of the broad American public to um, come to this sort of white, not just, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, not, uh, not just a reckoning, right, this, this way in which uh, reconciling, that's the word that I'm looking for, that there's always a sort of this effort to come back to white reconciliation in ways that are deeply problematic and undermines the ability to confront, 
right? You see this after the Civil War. You see this after the 1960s. You actually see this partially in the context of what happens with January 6th, right? That we're not willing to really give people jail time. We're not really willing to uh, do the confrontation that's needed to deal with this insurrection. And this sort of assertion that it's a one-time kind of moment, right? The work of liberation, right? And participating in liberation, period. For Black people, for other communities of color, requires that white people be able to confront each other. And, and that's a dynamic that that is, is still a process, right? Um, so to your little, sort of larger question about sort of what does one do, I, I think the result is that, that Black people have to keep moving forward regardless of what <laughs> the white community has been prepared to do, uh, which is what Professor Aki is, is, is referencing. I'd also point out that we do have examples of what to do. But it's not in the sort of framework of what we expect in terms of integration inside the United States. You have those non-black families who are now uh, buying land in Georgia and have now created what they call Freedom Georgia. You have people like Jill Scott, who's like, my son is coming of age and she is financially, I want to emphasize financially, able to leave the country. But there are a number of black people who have decided to return to uh, Africa and there are other people who are considering leaving the United States. So I, I think the, the fundamentals are about what, what can the Black community do and then what happens when they just get tired of trying to do that labor and that work. So it sounds like, uh, Professor Frazier, you've been talking about the, the racialized systems changing over time and folks really adapting to the changing of the system. It's become what I like to say a little more sophisticated in the way in which um, oppression is happening in the way in which um, oppressed people are responding to that. So in thinking about that, um, I want to invite Professor Hardaway back into this conversation. So thinking about being uh, some of your intersectional identities, right? We understand that you're a professor, you're also an attorney, and then as a scholar, as someone who's producing scholarship, there's a unique vantage point regarding the interaction between the legal system and this racial justice and this fight for liberation that we've been talking about. We've seen the ways in which the criminal justice system perpetuates racialized systems of oppression. So I want to speak specifically to um, what needs to change in order for our legal structures to support racial justice movements. So the first thing I'd say is that, you know, we have so many people, uh, leaders, decision makers, lawyers, judges, right, policymakers, who don't know their history. And not not to be circular in our conversation, but I can't tell you, right, how many people have come up to me in the last year to say, oh, you gave a lecture on sort of the origins of policing and the laws connected to the, reconstru- the reconstruction um, era and 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 how they were designed to control right the the formerly enslaved and i didn't even think about it in the context of the laws that we have in misdemeanor in municipal court for mr right like and it's like that tells you that they haven't been listening to krs1 <laughs> he made it crystal clear for all of us. 
I'm sure they have. You know what? I'm not, I'm not gonna even say like, oh, your your schools failed you. I'm gonna say you need to go back and listen to KRS One. I just feel like Boogie Down Productions really had a lot to say about this, and you missed it. Hey, it's out here, it's out here. NWA, which was more direct. It is out here. Uh, it's, so, right, I think that lack of awareness, uh, that lack of education, that desire to sit in places of power without fully appreciating um, how you perpetuate oppression in that position of power uh, is the first thing, right? I also think that so much of the work, at least in the criminal legal system, is it's supposed to be public, right? Uh, it's public record. It's supposed to be, you know, and by public, they mean let the media blast black faces across stories to make criminality synonymous with blackness. But what they don't mean is how do we work to make sure that we are transparent in the, the, our administration of justice? Right? How how do we work to make sure that it's clear that if we have identified a particular crime as needing to be enforced, that it is enforced across the board, right here in Cuyahoga County, on both sides of the river, if you will. Right. That that is not happening, right? Uh, we have a, a, an event coming up uh, next week. A professor out of Georgetown is going to be talking about the criminalization of Black youth, right? What are we doing with our young people that allow white children to be treated as adolescents, right? Because we understand the science behind, right, being an adolescent, but then ignoring that science and the, those the, those moments of grace when you're dealing with black children and right so 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 having some some awareness some transparency around the work that's being done uh and and allowing then for decisions to be informed by knowing your history understanding the original purpose the the, the racist origins of the system and then doing everything we can uh, to work towards that racial justice, which we mean by that we mean racial equity, right within the system, uh, so that disproportionate numbers members of of the black and 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 brown communities are locked away in jails because you know folks either don't know or don't care to know, right? Maybe both, right? And 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 I'm not negating, right, the people who clearly are operating with a specific animus, racial animus, uh, right, against people unlike them. So I know I said a lot and was maybe all over the place, but up in here it's all connected. No, And can I jump in just a, a, a little bit? Because I, I really, I, I want to lift up what Professor Hardaway is saying, but I also want to contextualize and sort of the idea that somehow uh, racism has gotten to be more nuanced, and and the more and more I sort of look at the the freedom movement, I think I might have to disagree with my my sister, Professor Arkey here, because 
you look at some of the ways in which race neutral, and I'm putting this in quotes, right? Uh, language plays out, uh, particularly in Northern spaces, which we know specifically uh, with regard to Cleveland, Ohio, what we're really failing to do is to sort of call uh, things what they are, right? That you have these things that are in place that are sort of insidious in the way in which they operate to undermine Black equality. Um, you know, uh, Professor Aki and I have both had family members who were involved in the Cleveland movement and um, got into a big fight over school desegregation. Well, that was actually never really broken down in part because of this sort of assertion that there was no law that specifically spoke about race, that uh, they had a, a school neighborhood policy. Now, the fact that all of the systems and structures operated to create separate neighborhoods and, and reduce the amount of monies that were allotted to certain kinds of schools, uh, that could be sort of market forces. That could be uh, sort of... Um, the question, the question of costs and, and property taxes, and that's just how things divvy up, and 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 you see that also play out. This sort of uh, lie about race neutrality now playing out uh, with regard to voting rights. Although people forget, most of the the voting rights issues in the South, nobody says specifically black people cannot vote. Right, the Fifteenth Amendment actually knocked that out. What they did was come up with the jelly bean test, or tell you how many soap bubbles you needed to to know before you could vote. So I think that the problem is, again, this part of the problem of white normativity is that there's so much space that's been created for everybody to pretend that race is not a part of a conversation when it exactly is a part of the conversation. And I think that what uh, really needs to happen is that we have to just whip that off, uh, off the, uh, off the, uh, the, the, the statue or whatever is being hidden. Professor Hardaway talked about the problem with both Democratic and Republican Party, and 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 the, and the problem with both of those parties that nobody wants to have that open conversation. Nobody wants to uh, point out that the emperor has no clothes, and they all want to hide behind: Is it really race? Is it really racism? Do they really mean this <laughs> when they really do? Yep. <laughs> They do, and it right. It's but it's quiet. It's in the background, and so as long as it's there, then we can pretend like it doesn't exist. Uh, so I, I would love for for our last question for both of you to share with our listeners about what you see as kind of the most important intersections when we're thinking about this confluence of you know race and democracy. Uh, let's go ahead and start with uh, Dr. Fraser. Uh, I was hoping uh, Professor Arkey, my cousin, would come and rescue me here. <laughs> you, got it, you got it, cousin. You got it. <laughs> you left me to the wind. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, I you probably called me at the wrong time. Uh, you really have. <laughs> you 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 really have. I am. I come from parents who believe in resistance, but I, uh, because black power in part assumes that uh, racism is unchanging, I'm beginning to wonder if the black power side of the family was not correct. Um, there's some fundamental questions about whether we can really get to this whole question of race and democracy. 
you know, I, I, I was sort of my father's Unitarian part of NAACP. That's, that's my, my, my integration side. My integration side says that, um, you can't be continue to be pessimistic about this, right? Because if you're going to be that pessimistic, you just you really do need to get your stuff and leave, right? And don't <laughs> don't be bothered. And so there's a part of me that does feel that through challenging, right, uh, asserting the right to vote, insisting that that everyone has rights to citizenship, that we can get to that space of uh, a, a shared uh, democratic participation. And I think that. You know, in terms of the youth, every generation, there is a group that comes in that seems to sort of demonstrate some sort of understanding and clarity about those issues. And at some point, hopefully that that group will begin to overwhelm and overtake those who operate to to undermine that. Uh, When that will happen, I think uh, we will literally begin to see play out in the next 10 to 15 years. It's going to get nasty first. Uh, before it gets better, but I think it's 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 going to take the whole of people. Uh, as the song go, "We who believe in freedom, right? <laughs> this is when you got to you are going to have to get your backbone in and get ready. Shall not rest. That's right. We shall not rest. We shall not rest. Yes, Professor Bell Hardaway. Yeah, I just you know I. <laughs> There's so many things that I want to say, and 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 the one thing that I think is a constant issue here is race. And so to sort of to to I mean, you know, the intersection question, right? Like we could talk about is it class? Is it right? Like all of these things. And and for me, the underlying thing always is race, regardless of class. There are active efforts in place not just to use the sort of pre-established and already um, ordained, if you will, right, like ways in which the black vote has been disenfranchised, right? Um, but also now that now that there are folks afoot in like you know Florida and everywhere else that are saying like, oh, you want to put this hurdle in the way? Fine, we'll find donors to pay the fines and the fees to remove that hurdle. So now the vote, right? And, and and then they come with another thing, right? That says like, this. okay, fine, you, we're, we're still gonna make it difficult for you to vote. And, 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 and they are targeting, that is targeting the black vote, regardless of sort of the place, the space, whether they've, you know, successfully be re- been rehabilitated, paid their dues to society, right? And when you have that level of, <laughs> Sorry, I just cracked my up with myself up with the pay to dues to society statement because I it's something that said and it's also something that does not make any sense. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Um, um, but 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 my point is right is that as long as you have those efforts at play, right, and there is an unwillingness right, from the political party that constantly curries the black folk to say enough is enough and we're going to do everything we can in this moment to ensure that we don't continue to to deal with this. We're calling it out. We are supporting the people because we, not just because we want their vote, but because we know that it is in fact the way that America is redeemed if America can be redeemed at all, right? And we're not there. 
right? We're not there. And so if we want to have a true democracy, right, it requires the, the pieces and parts that we were talking about earlier as it relates to racial justice. Like, what does racial justice in an American democracy really look like? And, and once, we, once we're willing to do that work, then I think, you know, James Baldwin and others who have asked the question, Derek Bell, around whether or not America can be redeemed, then I feel like now we have a pathway to redemption. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Um, you know, I just want to reiterate, Professor Frazier, you said we didn't get you at the right time. Oh, yes, we did. <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, you know, there's this quote that's flying around from the good Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. There's all the time is always right to do the right thing. And I think it when we are in times where we are pressed, right, maybe we are stressed, maybe we are in the midst, however we're describing that time, uh, that's when that, that honest truth pops right on out. <laughs> and so I think it becomes super important that we acknowledge that all of the questions that we talked about today came back to the fact that we need to know our history. And we need to understand, be able to manipulate any system or any institution to support our fight for freedom. That's going to be something that we're going to have to continue to do underground uh, with one another, building our own networks, building our own systems and building our own institutions, uh, creating that shared vision of liberation. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Professor Bell Hardaway, Professor Frazier, I'm so glad that you all were able to join us. Uh, and we are looking forward to the continued dialogue of the intersections of race, place, and democracy. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey, and this week I was joined by our new co-host, Shamara. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Goldenock Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio. And this series is supported by the Mark LeWine and John Gray Painter Program. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the podcast, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, and swag featuring designs by Donuts and Coffee, head on over to patreon.com forward slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about race and democracy. 